Thank you, Jim. Hi, everybody. I'm back. <laughs> um, like Ramey was saying, coming back, you, you pull up, you pull into the parking lot, you feel like, this is home. You know, this feels good to be back. So it was two Sundays that we were gone, and, and it's just really great to be back. So we want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to head to the back, your, uh, your teacher will go with you. Um, so two weeks ago, Lisa and I went to Central Christian and to uh, Grace Chapel to spy out their liberty. We snuck in unawares. Actually, we just we wanted to see what are other churches doing. And so one of the questions I had is, you know, these are larger congregations. What are they doing really well that we aren't doing or we can't do? And uh, they had a few more musicians up front, but their music was no no higher quality than ours. It was ours music is just as good. Um, I didn't feel like anything that they were doing we couldn't or we aren't or they were surpassing us in anything. So I just, I just was really grateful for our church. I thought, you know, even a small congregation, I think we're doing hitting all the right notes. Um, if I have one complaint about any of it, it was the coffee at Central was horrible. <laughs> that was it. I mean, you expect church coffee to be of a middling, you know, quality. But there's, I, I took one sip, went into the men's room, poured it out, and threw it away. So, you know, there's my big complaint about other churches. It was an encouragement to see, though, that there are other churches in the Antelope Valley that are faithful, that are making disciples, that are teaching, that are doing those kind of things. So um, it, it was just a refreshment. So that was nice. Uh, last week, um, I, got, I started getting a cold, and it was mostly in my nose, and I was snorkely. And then, like on a Wednesday, it just started going down into my throat. And by Thursday, I was like, I can't talk. So Wednesday, I texted Dan. I said, you might want to get something ready. And Thursday, it was like, I'm not going to be there. Um, so I kept thinking, you know, by Sunday, surely I'll be able to do it, right? So Sunday morning, I, I could talk for maybe a minute at the most. And then my throat would seize up, and I'd start, you know, like that. And I was like, well, that's going to mean the sermon is about four times as long. So maybe we'll let it go. The other thing was... I love you folks, I want to share my life with you, but I don't want to give you my cold. So I decided to just stay home. Um, but I did listen to Dan's sermon, and it is such a blessing to have somebody who can just fill in in a pinch like that, you know? Uh, otherwise, I was joking in the hallway, it might have been an Ezekiel sermon, where I would come up here and lay on my side and set a brick up and, and wage war against Jerusalem, um, you know, hold a steel iron skillet between me and Ed or something, and you'd have to figure out what I was talking about. Can you tell I'm reading through Ezekiel right now? So um, just a tremendous blessing, so thank you. And the other thing I want to say before we get to the sermon is, I wanted to th uh, Lisa and I want to thank you for the bonus that you gave us at Christmas. That was, that was a tremendous blessing to us. It was the right amount, right in the nick of time, just exactly what we needed. And it just always warms my heart to think, these folks are so kind and so generous. You pay me anyway. <laughs> and then you give me a bonus on top of that that's, that's just wonderful. Um, and you poor people have to listen to me talk every Sunday, so I don't, I don't know why I, I'm getting paid for this. I feel like I should pay you or something. Um, so with that, let me open us in prayer, and then we'll, we'll uh, approach the word. Lord, uh, you are indeed our great reward. Uh, the gospel is not a promise or a gateway to other smaller things. It is the promise and the gateway to the greatest of all things, which is to have communion fellowship, relationship, um, family ties to the God of the universe. And so thank you, Jesus, that you are our great reward. You have brought us in. You've made a way for us. And as we finish the sermon series on strangers, Lord, we're grateful that we are no longer strangers and aliens to the covenants of the promise, but you have brought us in. And, and thank you for that. Lord, as we turn now and, and return to the book of Exodus, uh, we confess that we need your help that this is a book that is inspired. It's not simply human writings. It is the inspired word of God. And as Paul said, people can't understand it unless the Spirit is working in them. So Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come and work in us now and help us to see and to understand. Teach us what it is that you want us to learn from Exodus 17. And Lord, we ask all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Um, I snuck water in because my throat keeps getting dry, so... If I do that, you'll know what's going on. So we're back in Exodus, finally. Do you remember where we left off? It's been, what, a month and a half? You can't remember? Wow. Let me refresh you what's going on. So Exodus really is the follow-up to Genesis. The way Exodus starts is exactly where Genesis left off. And I said what Genesis was about is who God is and who we are as his people. So the first 12 chapters is really about who God is. 
He is not like the Egyptian gods or, or the Canaanite gods or any of those other gods. He's not a god of the hills or the seas. He is the god of heaven and earth. He made it all. So when Israel comes into the promised land and they meet Ashtoreth, who's the goddess of fertility and of the harvest, they can just look and go, well, our god made the harvest. He's the one who at his word made things grow up out of the ground. Your Asherah is, is a slave of his. That doesn't make any kind of sense. So we learned a lot about who God is. And so that was the first 12 chapters. The rest of the book, through Abraham, through Isaac and Jacob, and especially through Joseph, we learned some very important things about what it means to be his people. God established covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant. And, and what did Abraham do when God was establishing covenant? In chapter 12, he was sound asleep on the ground. God put him into a deep sleep. He just laid there as God came and announced his covenant. And throughout Abraham's life, he repeats that covenant over and over again. So at the end of Abraham's life, you're wondering, well, now what? Abraham's died. And what we see is God provides. He gives not the child of the flesh, Ishmael, who Abraham had with his Egyptian slave. Instead, he has Isaac with his infertile, 90-year-old wife, or I think she was 70 at the time she had Isaac. Impossible. It, she's beyond childbearing age. And so God provides miraculously for the transmission of the covenant because the covenant will go through Isaac. So now we have the covenant is successfully transferred to Isaac by promise. And then Jacob comes along. Well, now, surely if anybody can screw up the covenant, it's Jacob, right? He's a schemer. He's a wheeler-dealer. He is a liar. He, he deceives his father. He pretends to be somebody else. Surely this is going to break God's covenant. And God goes, no. I'm going to continue to provide. I'm going to continue to carry forward my covenant. And he blesses Joseph, or Jacob, and he has 12 sons. And, and they're a pretty rotten lot, aren't they? Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law. Um, Simeon and Levi slaughter a village. I mean, it's just a bad lot. And not only that, but the whole lot of them turn against their younger brother and sell him into slavery. Does that end God's covenant? No, God continues to provide in this covenant. And that's why the last quarter of the book is about Joseph. It, it, it's exclusively, almost exclusively about Joseph and his rise in, in um, power in Egypt. And what was going on there is Moses is explaining to his people, we came to Egypt not because we were conquered people who got carried off by the Egyptian army. We weren't defeated by their military might. We came in as celebrities. Our father Jacob walked into Pharaoh's presence and blessed him. And we took the best of the land. He said, settle anywhere you want. So he needs the Israelites to know they're people of covenant, that God is faithful to the covenant even though they're not, and that they came to Egypt as celebrities. And so now that's the end of, of the book of Genesis. We come to uh, Exodus, and where does it start? Well, now they're slaves. Well, how did that happen? So what we get to the book of Exodus, what the book of Exodus is about is not who God is and who his people are, but now it's God and his people. He has formed a people, and he's going to live and work with them. And so the outline for the book of Exodus is that the first portion is God delivers us. And that was the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. God leads his people out of that slavery because he's faithful to his covenant. And he's not restricted. You see how it fits with Genesis? He's not, he's not the God of Canaan. He's free to operate anywhere he wants, including the land of Egypt. He, he doesn't have to ask permission from the Egyptian gods. He defeats them all. And so that's, that's the first portion is God delivers us. The portion of the book that we're in now is God rules us. As he has liberated his people from slavery, now he's going to rule over his people. And we'll see that most clearly when we get to Exodus 20, because at Exodus 20 and onward, God is giving his law. He's going to lay down his law for his people. That's how he rules over them. And then the last portion, after he gives them the law, he then gives elaborate, detailed instructions on how to build a tabernacle. And then he gives elaborate, detailed uh, recounting of them building the tabernacle. And then after the tabernacle is built, he gives elaborate, detailed description of what the tabernacle now looks like. So the last portion is about the tabernacle. And that answers the question, God is going to dwell with his people. He's going to be right in the middle of them. So he liberated them from slavery. He rules over them so that he can, rule, he can live with them. So that's, that's kind of the outline of the book of uh, Exodus. We're in chapter 17, so we're into that portion called God Rules Us. Um, last time we, we were here, which was about 1,000 years ago, I think, 
we were talking about Sabbath and manna. Do you remember that? And what I said was that this, the manna was God's gracious provision. He's feeding them on a daily basis. And wrapped up, intertwined with the giving of his gracious provision of manna is Sabbath. It's cooked right into it. And the idea is not, I can't do this and I can do that and I can only walk so far. And do that. That's not Sabbath. Sabbath is rest. I'll provide just rest. And what we said at the time was it's how God made us. Is he made us to expire at a certain time and to need rest. And if you have never stayed up past midnight and then just can't keep your eyes open, then you don't know what I'm talking about. We're made to be exhausted. We're made for rest. And so the Sabbath is God's kind, gracious provision of rest in the middle of the week. And, and it's tied in with his provision of manna. So it has what the law, what Moses was painting that picture there is, law is not about God being um, this mean, overbearing parent who's going to control every little aspect. It's about provision and love and care. And we need to know that as we come into the law because it's very easy to get lost in some of the details there. So what do we get with chapter 17? Well, actually, chapter 17 and 18 really fit together to paint a picture, but we can't handle them together. It's too long. So this is going to be the first part, and then next week will be the second. What we're getting here is Moses is, before he goes into God's rules, he wants us to understand who he is. He wants us to not idolize him, to put him up on too high of a platform. So what we're going to get this week and next week is God's humble leader under God's rule. It's God's leader in humility who's leading under God's rule. So that's part one this week and part two next week. Now, the, the part that we got, you heard Jim read the story. It seems like two really disconnected stories, two very disconnected things. But actually, there's some really good strong linkage here, and I, I hope to bring it out as we go through this. Uh, so here's what happens is the congregation set out. Remember where we left them was at Elam. They had just left Elam, which was this kind of oasis, and then these, these palm trees and these oasis. Now they're heading off into what's called the wilderness of sin. Um, it, it's not sin as in the English word sin. It's what's called a, um, a transliteration. We're just picking up the Hebrew letters and saying them in English. Um, actually, uh, and Lisa pointed this out, it would actually be more accurately pronounced as sign because the second letter is ayin, which is like a Y sound, so it might be sign. But that doesn't really help either, does it? Because we have an English word sin, and we have an English word sign. <laughs> so what it is, is this is just a chunk of wilderness that's between Elam and near to Mount Sinai. That's, that's the wilderness that they're in. Uh, big, huge chunk of desert. Um, we're not exactly sure where the boundaries and all of that are, but that's where they're going. And it says, according to the commandment of the Lord, literally according to the mouth of the Lord. God has told them, set out and head off into the wilderness. Where he's leading them to is he's leading them to Mount Sinai, and we'll see that in a few weeks. So I'll save the, the, that part of the story. But they're off in the wilderness, and they camp at a place called Rephidim. And Rephidim means a place of rest. It's, that's why they camp there. And so they stop and they settle, and it says, but there was no water for the people to drink. Boy, does this sound familiar? The last place was Mara, which had water, but it was bitter, and they complained. And so now they get to Rephidim, and boy, there's no water. Therefore, they quarreled with Moses. The word quarreled there is stronger than grumbled, which is what they did at, um, at Elam and some of the other places at uh, Mara. Now it has a sense of bitterness, anger, Animosity. As a matter of fact, what we'll see as we go through this is it, they're threatening him. They're going to kill him. It's, it's not just grumbling as in your five-year-old grumbles when you say clean your room. Um, this is a, a large amount of people grumbling as in I'm going to kill this guy if he doesn't come up with something. It, it's pretty serious stuff. So they grumble at Moses and they say, give us water to drink. Like Moses has got, you know, like a camelback on. He can just, you know, go around and feed everybody or something. What's he supposed, what are they expecting him to do? They're, they're mad at him because he hasn't provided. And they yell at him, give us water to drink. Moses' response, though, says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? I, th I think that's really important for what Moses is about to do in giving the law and ruling over the nation is to start with this question, why do you grumble at me? Why do you test the Lord? What he's saying to them is, you're grumbling at me, you're threatening me, your anger at me is not because of me, it's because of the Lord. 
And so when you yell at me, when you get mad at me, you're actually testing God because God is the one that's been providing all of this stuff. I'm just the guy up front providing or, you know, waving my hand and doing stuff. You're not angry at me. You're angry at God. You're testing him. Now, I want to kind of take a pause here and unpack this a little bit because it, it, we need to understand it before we get into the rest of this. This is not a personality cult where, where Moses is just able to sway the people by saying, anything that comes out of my mouth is God's words and therefore you have to believe me. That, that's a personality cult where the, the person in front is so persuasive and so charismatic. I don't mean charismatic as in tongues and, and signs. I mean charismatic as a warm and winning personality that he can sway a group. I've seen it. I've seen this happen. There was a, when I was in the Air Force, there was a guy who led a group of people and he did it under really persuasive, really aggressive, really angry preaching and telling them how everybody else was wrong and they were just dazzled by this guy. That's a personality cult. And personality cults exist. They're everywhere. And what it is is you look at the person and the person that's in charge says, you can't question me because if you question me, you're questioning God. They don't say that explicitly because then people would not believe them. So they do it implicitly. It, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing. That is not what Moses is doing here. He's not saying every word that falls out of my mouth is perfectly inspired, and if you question me, you're questioning God. What he's saying is he's, he's trying to put himself in the position of being under God's rule, but being in a position of leadership. So it's kind of a halfway point. So be careful about that. Be careful about people who are going to try to bully you into things or they, they're going to try to show you that they're so wonderful and so spiritual that, that you have to listen to them. And to disobey would be to disobey God. Um, that's a terrifying place to be. It's kind of creepy leadership. And, and it happens. It, it shows up, unfortunately. Um, when uh, another, I've got plenty of stories of this, but I'm not going to. There was another one that was, that was um, out here um, a number of years ago when we first got here. But it, it's just, you get the idea, right? It's creepy. So this, how can I say that this is not Moses' personality called? Well, look at how they've treated Moses so far. So Exodus chapter 2, right? Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house. He some, comes out to meet his people and see what happens. An Egyptian is beating a Hebrew. He kills him throws his body and hides it into the sand. The next day he comes out and there's two Hebrews quarreling and he says, hey, you guys, chill, be nice to each other. And they say, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? So they immediately throw shade at him. It's like, you're a bad person. Who are you to tell me this? That's Exodus 5, or 2. Exodus 5, after he goes off to uh, Midian and he comes back, um, he comes back to tell them, look, I'm going to liberate you. God told me to come here and confront Pharaoh. And so he goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, they're lazy. They're not working hard enough. Make them get their own straw. How did the people respond to that? Lord, look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the eyes of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Thank you, Moses. So they, they just are so won over by Moses' wonderful personality, aren't they? Exodus 14. This was at, uh, at Marah. Uh, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? Why have you done this? Uh, why have you done to us? What, I'm sorry. What have you done? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not what we said uh, to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So you can see that Moses has just won them over. They're, they're, they would never question a thing he has to say. They're grumbling. So what Moses' response is, what a godly, humble leader is. Real quick, remember what, how I've defined hum humility. Humble is not milk toast, roll over, never give anybody offense. Humble is, I understand who God is, and I understand my, who I am in light of who God is. So that's Moses' humble leadership, and he's going to be fiery. He's going to get really, especially the golden calf. You remember that story? He, he got so mad, he broke the Ten Commandments, the tablets they were on. He took the golden calf, ground it up, threw it in the water, and said, now drink it. And according to Deuteronomy, he was the most humble man of his day. Because he saw himself in light of who God was, who he was, what his role was. So how does the humble man respond to grumbling and threats of murder? This is how he does. 
He responds by verse 4. He cried out to the Lord. So the humble leader cries out to the Lord because he knows it's not about him. It's not me. Now, the, the creepy leaders in the church, the, the personality cult folks, will pray. But it just reminds me of the prayers of the Pharisees. Oh, Lord. And they'll pray before everybody. And I have served this church so wonderfully. And make these ingracious people love me and serve the way, you know, that kind of. So it's not that they don't pray, but their prayers are pretense. What did Jesus say? He said, don't pray like the Pharisees who stand on the street corner and try to get everybody's attention. When you pray, go into your closet. Lock yourself in a closet and pray. And that's what Moses did is he, he cries out to the Lord. He goes off and he says, um, he cries out to the Lord and he says, what shall I do with this people? They're ready to stone me. They are ready to pick up stones. I could just see some of the guys standing there with a big, nice rock in their hand looking at Moses as he's walking away. It's coming. Coming for you. They're ready to stone me, Lord. What do I do? The humble leader turns to the Lord and says, I don't have all the answers, Lord. What do I do? So listen to God's great answer. This is his response. Pass on before the people. What? <laughs> the guy is standing there with a stone in his hand. You want me to just walk right in front of him? Yeah, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Now, don't forget the elders of Israel might have been the one holding the rock going, I'm, I've got to, I'm in charge of my family and you're going to kill us out here in the wilderness. I'm fixing to stone you. And he says, no, go grab one of them. Walk before the people, take some of the leaders and take in, the, in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. That's his response. They're about to kill me. What am I supposed to do? Well, go hang out with them some more. Go, go grab their leaders and, and walk with them and take that staff. That staff is going to become extremely important. It's something that, that is just really going to paint a wonderful picture. We'll get there. So he says, and go, behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So what I want you to do is take these people who are about to stone you, and I want you to walk to Horeb. Now, Horeb... We're not exactly sure what that means. We're in the wilderness of sin. Um, we're heading to Mount Sinai. Sometimes Sinai is called Horeb. So maybe Horeb is a subsection of, Mount, of the wilderness of sin that includes Mount Sinai. But whatever it means, that's, that, it's not meaning that they're at the Mount, Mount Sinai yet. We'll see in the next couple of chapters they've got some traveling to do. But they're, they're in Horeb, and he says, go, and go to the rock and strike the rock. Well, Lord, how am I going to know which rock? Easy, I'll be standing on top of it. Can't miss it. Now, what on earth does that mean, that the Lord will stand on the rock? Does that mean that he came up and there was a bright glow or Ezekiel? See, I told you I'm reading Ezekiel, Ezekiel's image of the wheels and the beasts and the, the, all of that. Or was it just a bright glow? Maybe. Maybe the Lord's presence. Maybe, as we've said, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, maybe that moved over and stood on top of the rock. Maybe. Or possibly... It was invisible. God just said, I will invisibly stand on the rock. We don't know. There's not enough detail. Doggone it. Come on, Moses. Can't you just paint a picture or something? We don't get the detail. But what we know is the Lord is standing on the rock. And Moses is to walk up with the staff that he used to strike the Nile. And he's just going to come up and strike the rock. And then what will happen? I mean, we always picture the rock splitting in two and water pouring out. It might have been he just went thrap. And then water started coming out from underneath it or around it or, or who knows. But whatever it was, it was the striking of the rock that brought out the water. The water flowed and the people drank. This was not bitter water like Mara. This was, this was good water, water they could actually drink and they could enjoy. And so that's what happens is he strikes the rock and the water comes out. He says, Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now he goes on, he says, he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's a little tidbit we didn't get before the striking of the rock. It wasn't just, Moses, you stink. It was, is God even with us? I mean, we're going to die here, you guys. We don't have any water. Does God even care? And so that's the testing. That's the quarreling. Now, Masa is, is the, uh, it sounds like the word for testing. The, the word for testing in Hebrew is Nasa. And so nasa, masa, pretty close, right? Um, the word in Hebrew for 
quarreling is riv. And so why does that sound like mirabah? Well, it's got the R sound in there, but the V in Hebrew can either be ba or v. They're both happen right here on the front of the lips. They're called fricatives. They're right up front. And so the same letter is used for ba and v. The difference is you put a dot in it to make it a V. So mirabah is exactly the same word. It is that, that same root. Masa and mirabah will come up again in their history. They'll be reminded of this. As a matter of fact, we'll be reminded of it as well. Um, about testing and quarreling. And so how does the Lord respond? Does he just zap his people and, and say, let's scratch, let's start over again? He, he delivers them, he provides, he loves, and he cares for them. So that's the first story. We'll come back and unpack that a little bit in a moment. But we did get a picture of Moses as a, a humble leader there. We see how he handled it. So now the next story. They're there, the water is flowing, life is good now. And then Amalekites come and fought with the Israel at Rephidim. So who are the Amalekites, and why would they fight with Israel? Amalekites at this point were nomadic people in that area. They traveled around. Why would they pick a fight with Israel? Because they're nomads. They need water, and they come over a crest, and here's a million people and a whole bunch of cattle in their territory drinking their water. So just Israel's presence in that desert would be a threat to, to uh, Amalek. So that's why the Amalekites attack. It's not like you're on my, get off my lawn, you rotten kids. This is, you're threatening our livelihood. We may die if we stay here. You're going to eat all the grass, you're going to drink all the water, and then we'll die. So they attack. Um, I'm not defending them. I'm not saying that was the right thing to do, because God's going to judge them for that. But what happens is Moses says to Joshua, choose men, go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Staff is back, isn't it? Now, who's standing? Moses is standing on a hill. God stood on a rock. Moses has his staff in his hand, and he's, he's back there, and he says, you guys go out and fight. I'm going to go up on the hill, and I'm going to take the staff of the Lord with me. So that's what he did. Joshua did as Moses told him. By the way, this is the first mention of Joshua in, in the Bible. This is the first time we meet him. Um, Moses is writing probably much later in his life, so when he mentions Joshua, he knows, and people know who Joshua is. Joshua is the heir apparent. He's the one that will probably take over from Moses when Moses dies. So everybody kind of knows him, so that's why he just kind of drops it in. It's just assuming you know who he's talking about. Um, so Joshua is going to be the leader, the military leader, who when Israel gets to Canaan, will lead them in conquest of the promised land. So that's why he's important here. He's introduced as a military commander here, right? So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. So Moses has got his, his two assistants, and they go up on the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. Why was this never done in Veggie Tales? I, just, I picture something like, what's that? Oh, because they don't have hands, yeah. They didn't have any arms. How, how could a cucumber hold up his arms? You wouldn't know what he was doing. I, I just picture something like Monty Python, the, the, the cartoons in Monty Python sometimes, is Moses is standing up there with his hands up, and you see these, these two little things going, and then when he lowers his hands, they go this way, and then when he, and, and it's kind of comical almost, is, you know, when he puts his hands up and puts his hands down, let's see what happens. Oh, and down, up, up, down, okay. Um, but it's not a comical thing. It just, it seems comical because we watch too many cartoons. Well, I did anyway. So why, what is the deal with Moses' hands giving them victory or retreating victory from them? What is that, what's going on there? Well, what did he take up on the, mount, on the hill with him? That what is currently in his hands? The staff. The staff is back. So when he holds that staff up, the people can see that. Now, I don't know if it stirred them to greater bravery or something, but it was the Lord working through this. And so he holds the staff up. They're victorious. And now as his arms begin to weaken and, and he's, they're coming down, you, people who do gym days, you know what I'm talking about. Do the bench press and then you can't lift your arms past this for a day or two. When his arms start sagging, they start losing. I think what the picture that Moses is painting here for us is it ain't, he, he's just a man. He's not superhuman. He can't stand there with his hands in the air all day and all night. He's just a man. So when he brings his hands up and they have victory, it's not because there's some magical property in his hands. They're just like your hands or my hands. His arms are not that strong. 
Whose arm is that strong? The Lord's arm is that strong. He could defeat the Amalekites at any moment that he wanted. How do we know that? Don't forget where we just came from. The most powerful economic and military might in the world, Egypt, was defeated. And not only were they defeated, but their army was wiped out in the Red Sea. Who did that? Moses, standing with a staff in the air. He extended it over the, over the ocean, and it parted. And he withdrew it, and it collapsed. So it's that same picture. God is working. God is actually doing stuff, but he doesn't do it invisibly sometimes. He decides that he wants a representative to stand up front. Moses, I want you to do this thing so it will demonstrate to the people what I'm doing. So that's the picture. Is he's got his hand in the air, and then they're, they're, they're sagging. So what it says is they, um, they were concerned for him, so Aaron and Hur um, brought a stone and put it underneath him. So the Lord stood on a stone and provided water. Moses has got to sit down because he's too weak. You get the contrast between leadership under God's rule? God is not weak. He doesn't fall asleep. He doesn't get tired. But Moses does, and so they got to roll a chair up underneath him so he can sit down. <coughs> and so then what they have to do is Moses is not able to do this himself. This is really setting up for the, the uh, story in chapter 18, which is Jethro's advice is he can't do it alone. He's incapable. He's not strong enough. So he's got Aaron and her standing on each side holding his arms up. Like their arms, I'm sure, got tired too. So maybe they took spells back and forth or something. But they're having to hold his arms up. It's too much for one man. It's too much for two men. It's too much for three men leading these people. It's not within our capability. So this is Moses' humility saying, I'm not capable of doing these things, Lord. You have to do it. I'm going to be the representative. I'm going to be the one up front doing it. But, Lord, it's your hand that's going to win this battle. And so they held his hands steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. <coughs> he overwhelmed them. He did not destroy them. He did not eradicate them. They're going to come up later on. As a matter of fact, if you look through the rest of the Pentateuch, Moses' five books, the Amalekites are mentioned a few more times, but it's only curses on them. We don't see them. The next time we see them is after Moses has led them through the wilderness. Joshua has brought them into the promised land. They've settled. The nation is ruled by judges. After 400 years of judges rule, they go, well, we want a king. <coughs> and so God gives them Saul. One of God's early commandments to Saul is, remember the Amalekites? Go wipe them out. Don't, don't save a thing. Everything is to go. And this is the famous story where, um, where Saul goes marching off into battle and he comes back and, and Samuel comes up and he says, so, did you do everything the Lord said? And Saul goes, oh man, we were so victorious. He goes, really, what's this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? You, you kept the livestock. What did I tell you to wipe them all out? Oh yeah, hey, we brought the king of Amalek as well. Oh did you, can you not obey? Well, we were going to offer a sacrifice. And that's where we get the idea, obedience is better than sacrifice. So that's, that's the story. That's the rest of the Amalekites. So that's their story. They're now delivered from them. They have at least driven them off. So they're not attacking the camp anymore. And they're settled. So this is the humble leader's response. This is how the humble leader, he, he puts a big picture of himself up front. And he gets a portrait painted. You ever seen in, in pictures in North Korea? You cannot turn around without seeing Kim Il-sung's face, Kim Jong-un's face. They're everywhere. He wants you to remember who's large and in charge. Moses doesn't do that. He doesn't set up a banner saying Moses was triumphant. Here's what he says. God tells Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Joshua was going to need to remember this battle when he takes over the promised land, so recite it to him. That I, uh, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Whose name gets put on this? Moses? Moses was triumphant. Moses held up his hands. It's the Lord is my banner. So that's the name of this altar. So he builds an altar. Remember, uh, Abraham did that. Um, Joshua, or I mean, uh, um, um, Jacob did that. He built an altar. He named it. These were memorial sites that remind people when they came across this pile of stones, what's that? That's the altar that, that we built called the Lord is my banner, and what's the story? Let me tell you the story. This is what happened. 
So that's what Moses does. He doesn't put himself up front. He doesn't put his face on the front of this. He doesn't put his name on the altar. The name of this altar is the Lord is my banner. So banner is kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? That one theory is that that idea of the staff is kind of representing the banner because what you would do generally is you would hang some, some cloth off of a large stick like that and you would hold that up in battle so people could see the rally point. And so what he's saying is there's no cloth on this stick. This stick represents something else. I'm going to hold this up and it's the Lord who is my banner. The Lord who is the strength. The Lord is the rallying point for our army. And then it says, and saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So what he's saying there, I like this one commentator, Douglas K. Stewart said, what Moses said then is, my hand was on Yahweh's throne as a way of saying, when I held up that staff, I was symbolizing the presence of Yahweh right with us, sitting on his throne, ruling over the battle and helping us win. So that's why these two things are there. So the humble leader, when he has victory, when he has his tremendous um, um, uh, victory over his enemies, what's his response? It's time to praise God. It is time to praise God. Yes, I, I had the plan and I developed the strategy and everything, but I am inconsequential. The only way it works is because of God. Let's praise God. That's the humble leader in the middle of that. So that's how it worked. That's how this played out. So there's more meaning to this. Remember I mentioned this, the staff has a lot of meaning. It has a, a lot of rich meaning. Um, it's called various things. It is Moses' staff. Take your staff in your hand. It is called Aaron's staff. Aaron took the staff and he went out and did this. It's called the God's staff, the, the staff of the Lord. And what does it symbolize? What is it doing? Well, in Israel, in, in, Israel, in, in uh, Egypt, it was the staff you struck the Nile with. He came out, Moses came out, and he hit the Nile with that. And what I said at the time when we looked at that plague was he turned the river Nile into blood because Moses hit it with his staff. It was a symbol of God's power, his authority to rule over Egypt's economic and military might. The, the Nile provided tremendously for them. And so when God comes up with this staff and he hits it, it, it immediately turns it into blood. It shows God is powerful over it. The staff is representing God's judgment on Egypt at the time. So then when he comes to this parting of the Red Sea, he says, hold out the staff over the sea, and it parts. And the, part, the, the sea just stands up. It stands up like walls on each side as Israel goes through on dry ground. Not moist ground, not muddy ground, but dry ground. So it wasn't just a natural occurrence where the water blew back or something. It dried the land so they could cross on it. And that was God's staff did that. That was his power, his authority. And then Moses is told, now retreat that, take that staff back, and the water crashes in and destroys Egypt's army. It's a symbol of his judgment on Egypt and his deliverance of his people. So when he comes to the rock, when Moses comes to the rock and God says, take the staff and hit the rock, he strikes the rock with God's judgment, and what happens? God's provision pours out from it. God provided by striking that rock. Now, this is going to get Moses in trouble later. Um, this rock shows up again. Now, maybe not the same rock, but a rock that is going to provide water shows up again in Numbers. Um, it's uh, Numbers chapter 20. What happens there is the Lord said to Moses, similar situation. We don't have any water. Grumbling, we're going to stone you. We're going to kill you. Give us water or you're dead. Um, so Moses calls out to the Lord. The Lord says, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before the eyes to yield its water. So Moses is told, now go to the rock and don't strike it. Take the staff, have the staff in your hand, but now speak to a rock. Speak to a rock. So if the Lord ever tells you to talk to a rock, I recommend doing it, okay, even though it sounds weird. So he goes, speak to the rock. Well, what happened? Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. So everything worked out well, right? No. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore I will not bring this, uh, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. Because he struck the rock, Moses didn't forfeit his salvation, but he did forfeit entering the promised land. Isn't God harsh? Isn't that just a little too much? I mean, come on. Why would he be so picky about speak to versus strike and, 
and you hit it twice, and you know, what's, what's the big deal? Well, there's a tremendous amount of weight behind this rock, and I don't mean physical weight, I mean theological weight behind this rock. It represents something huge, and God, something that God cares very deeply about, that it be done exactly as he said. So we're in the part about God rules us, and so when God rules us, he expects his rules to be followed, right? What is up with this rock? Well, again, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the way it begins is, most, or, um, um, Paul says, for I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, manna, right? And all drank the same spiritual drink, water, the water that they drank. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and in the most alarming, mind-blowing theological statement in the whole Bible, I think, well, maybe not. Okay, that's hyperbole. Maybe In a very startling statement, Paul says the rock was Christ. This rock that followed them, this rock was Christ. So now go back and look at that staff as judgment and deliverance. Christ was stricken once. God hit him. God struck him. God punished him for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us once. That was it. That was at the very beginning of their deliverance. That is how they were delivered is by Jesus being stricken by God's judgment. So at the end of it, when you run out of water, when you have needs, you go to Christ. Do you crucify him again? No, you come and you say, Lord, we need. We, we have needs. Would you please provide? And then you watch that rock pour out water. That was what was supposed to happen. God was so jealous for this picture of who Jesus would be that when Moses violated it, he forfeited the benefit of going into the promised land. That was why God, it's not a petty thing. It seems petty until you put it into the broader scope. It was extremely important that he do that. And then think about that issue of water from the rock. When Jesus in John chapter four met the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, give me something to drink. And she's like, you're talking to me, a woman and a Samaritan? And he says, look, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for a drink. And I'm sure she was like, why? Because the water I give will spring up from inside and you'll never thirst again. Jesus will provide that water. When he was crucified, the spear went into his side and what flowed out was water and blood. The spirit is the, the water that he's pouring out. In Ezekiel, there's the picture of the temple. And coming out from underneath the steps of the temple is this water of this pure, fresh water that runs. And the further away it gets, the deeper and the wider the, the river becomes. And it desalinates anything around it. Genesis chapter 20, the new Jerusalem, the, heavens, the new heavens and the new earth, there's a, there's a spring that comes out from the new Jerusalem. And it does the same thing. On each side grows the tree of life. That is the picture of Jesus providing water to his people, pouring it out, pouring it out. So when Jesus, or when Moses strikes that rock twice, God is very angry because you've just sullied the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have just messed that up. That's why it was so important. That why it was, that's why it was so crucial that he do it just exactly right. So what does that picture have to do with leadership then? Well, let's bring that back to look at Moses in the middle of this. Moses was tasked to lead as God had instructed him to. It was important that Moses be faithful to what he had been called to do. So in Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews explains the relationship between Moses and Jesus to us. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all the house of God. So there is a, a parallel. There's, a, there's a, a, a picture between Moses and God, but listen to how this plays out. The humble man in the midst of this, Jesus was faithful just as Moses was faithful. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more glory, more honor than the house itself. The man who, who built this structure, it receives more glory. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. There you go. That's the key for the humble leader, is he's faithful in the house as a servant. He recognizes my position here is not the son. My position is the servant. I may be the most exalted, the head 
of everything. We just watched um, Downton Abbey the other day, the, the beginning of it again, and you meet Mr. Carson, who is the head butler and large and in charge, but he would never presume to go upstairs and, and hop into bed. That's not his place. He was the most faithful, the most loyal servant, but would never elevate himself to the, the, crawly, or to the, uh, the family. He would never go into their, that position. That's Moses. Moses is doing all of the important things, the things he thinks are really crucial that need to be done, but would never elevate himself to that. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as the son. The son comes and the son inherits. So when Jesus is humble, right, it's, it says that he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. When he's humble, he comes as the son, and he says, I understand my position before God, and I am to receive worship, and I am to receive honor, and I am the builder of the house, and I will inherit all of this. That's not hubris. That's not vanity. That is simply saying this is what God has ordained. Whereas Moses looks and he goes, I'm going to be faithful with all of these things because the son is coming, because the son will come and he will inherit, and I want to be a good and faithful servant for the son. And we are his house. We are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, we are his house. So does the house ever tell the, per, the, the owner, well, I'm more important than you are, so I'm not letting you in? It's a really good way to get a house replaced or burnt down or something. So th this is the picture of the humility. So as we move into... Uh, next week, we're going to take this, these themes, these, these ideas that Moses has laid down. We're really going to amplify them. We're going to put a face on them, and he's going to speak to Moses and say a lot of these same things. He's going to remind Moses of his position in it. But, but what we're seeing here is that idea of a humble leader, the leader who says, I'm here to do what God's doing. I'm here to do what, as God has instructed me. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's about Jesus. I am, I'm not the head shepherd. I'm the under shepherd. And so when the head shepherd shows up, I say, yes, sir, what do you want? That's, that's the picture of a humble leader. So it's kind of a difficult, it's, a, it's kind of a wrestling match because we tend to err on the side of, well, I'm in charge, so y'all have to do it my way because I said so. And we can then begin to listen to our own press and listen to the own thoughts in our head, and we can get puffed up. But what we're seeing here is Moses, who is in a far greater position than we are, Remain humble in the midst of it. This is really important as we move into him giving the law. As, as we hear him pronounce, the Lord says, do this and don't do that. Make, do it this way, but don't do it that way. You could wind up letting your eyes drift off, the Lord said, and focus on Moses. And, and he might wind up making the mistake of calling it the law of Moses. Oh, come on, man. I thought that worked. I thought that was kind of... It is the law of Moses, but it's God's law through him. So we need to understand Moses' position here before we get to him handing out the laws. So we don't overestimate who he is or how important he is. He's extremely important, but he was a servant in the house. Who inherited it? Who gathered it all? Jesus is the one. And so as we're looking to leaders, as we're looking at leadership, um, we just affirmed our elders and our deacons. Um, I don't think any of us are in danger of being idolized <laughs> or thought too much of. Thank you very much. That's dangerous because it's, it gets in your own head and you start to believe, maybe I am that good. Um, you don't do that to me, so thank you. Um, but we, at the same time, we have to go, so when is it that if I disobey a quarrel with a leader in the church, I'm disobeying or quarreling with God? Because it would be really easy for me to stand up here and go, anything I say goes, and if you don't agree, you're, you're arguing with God. Paul didn't do that, right? What happened with Paul when the, he met the Bereans? He came to the Bereans and he preached. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the good news from the Old Testament. And they go, hmm, good, okay. They take their Bibles home and they go look it up. And Paul commended them for that. That was a good thing. So when, when we, as your leaders, speak, if we're speaking God's word, if we're, we're accurately and, and faithfully and, and truthfully handling God's word, you can't argue with that because it's God's word. You can argue with me and my interpretation of it. But you can't say, well, it, I know the Bible says that, but I don't believe it. That's the point where you go, okay, now I'm not quarreling with, with Tim. I'm, I'm arguing with the Lord. So if we're doing this right, if your elders are doing this right, we're standing here with the Bible in our hands and we're explaining to you. And, and you, as good Bereans, need to go and go, let me check that out. Let me see what that looks like. 
and, and let me see how that goes. So at best, we're aiming towards Moses. But Moses is in a unique situation. Here's the other unique thing with Moses. Did he just show up and, and, and um, by the strength of his personality, get him to all follow him? What did he do? He did miracle after miracle. He shows up and he says, hey, God sent me. No, he didn't. He throws his staff down and it turns into a serpent. Anybody done that lately? I don't think Jim Jones did anything like that. He, he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. No, bam, the, the Nile's blood. Here's frogs. Here's gnats. So he's got these, these long line of miracles behind him to say, look, I am legitimately God's spokesman here. And you need to listen to me, not because of me, but because of the Lord. So that, that's, that's the other thing is, um, if, if I show up and I throw a staff down and it turns into a snake, um, probably fire me, I guess, would be the best advice. But, but be very skeptical, be, because that's not something that is done for all leaders throughout history. It was unique to Moses. Moses is in a very unique position. How many times does the nation of Israel start? It only starts once, and it's starting now. So all of that to say, we move into law. We shouldn't become enamored of Moses. We should be looking to the Lord in all of this. And ultimately, we're not just saying God in general. We're, we're thinking, where is Jesus in this? Where is Jesus in this law? Because it's Jesus who is the rock, who provides, who bears judgment, and who provides for us. And that's where we're hoping to lead. That's where we're hoping to go. And that's what I'm glad to report I saw in those other churches, too, is there was nobody standing up going, you guys, I'm, I am so wonderful. You should just follow every word I say. They were all pointing to Jesus. And, and praise God. Make more churches like that, Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for ruling us. And, Lord, that sounds weird in America, in a, in a um, if it feels good, do it kind of society in a, a democracy where we decide who rules us, Lord, to invite you and say, we come under your rule because you're the king. So, Lord, would you help us to see your rule not as tyrannical and mean and, and, uh, and selfish, but, Lord, as appropriate and right and full of joy, full of love. The best thing for us is to fall in line with you. So, Lord, give us grace that we might walk with you, that we might see you as our ruler, and Lord, I pray for the leadership in this church, but also other churches in the valley. Lord, um, I pray that we would be leading in the way that you want us to lead, that the, that the elders, the pastors, whatever other titles people bear who are in a position of leadership, Lord, would you grant them all the grace to lead as Moses did with humility and not about themselves. And Lord, we, we ask that because we want to see Jesus, his name proclaimed and his church grow, especially in our valley where we live. And so we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.